convicting for me as a husband to have to prepare something that I've taught in two different giant series and teach it in a third series and just see um, just my failure, you know. And so it is good, though, to come to a place where I realize sin and mess ups and just I know I just need to spend some time with Lindsay um, tonight confessing and repenting to her. So um, isn't that fun? Have you ever had a marriage speaker say that like, I'm a loser. You guys should really find somebody else. But I got paid to do this gig and I'm going to, no, I'm joking. Um, so, all right, tonight, session number one, but it's actually like part three um, in a 12-part series. Um, we're going to probably do a 10-part series out of it. I'm just trying to really squish and combine. But what we have here is our part one before our break will be that we're existing for God's glory, not self-fulfillment, or that the family is subservient to God. Um, Is there happen to be one extra notes? Extra? Okay. Just good to know what you guys are looking at, you know. So, yeah, part three there, the subservience of the family uh, to the Lord. Um, you know, as much as we have tried to uh, kind of go from one pendulum swing of, you know, man, our culture is just so depraved and family is falling apart. Uh, we see that from an Atlantic article in uh, the mid-2000s called All the Single Ladies, where Kate Bullock suggests we stop thinking about traditional marriage as society's highest ideal, and where she says divorce is no longer the new normal, it's just normal. Um, And so we see, you know, kind of one pendulum is that just divorce is the new normal, and broken families are broken families, and just culture tends to just care less and less about uh, the traditional family or the nuclear family, um, we kind of swing in a pe- pendulum the opposite direction to where as Christians, oftentimes we make an idol out of the family. We can make an idol out of marriage and uh, not that it's bad, but the name focus on the family kind of speaks for itself. You know, uh, sometimes we just like zoom in so tight that we forget maybe something even bigger that the Lord has Um, in his design for marriage. There was one Sunday school class at a church that a pastor writes about that for a whole entire year, this Sunday school class, and I'm talking about older adults in a Sunday school class, um, that uh, these adults had for a whole year been doing a teaching uh, and study on marriage and family. And something that uh, the pastor observed as he came in as an outsider is that most of these couples in this Sunday school class were not involved in the life of their local church in any way, shape, or form, okay? Uh, They possessed no evangelistic burden whatsoever to tell other people about Jesus. They had zero appetite for any of the great truths of God and the Bible if it didn't directly intersect with some sort of a teaching on 
on the family. And so they were missing something so much bigger than family. Believe it or not, there's something out there that's bigger than family. So just to kind of recap all that mumbo jumbo, you know, like we live in a culture that, you know, something like 60% of, uh, and I think I got the statistic here, um, something like 60% of the, the, um, shootings of police officers happen when they go to domestic disturbances, you know, like these guys are getting shot as they're going to try to fix all the mess ups out there in all of the homes, you know, and so it just shows that there's like disaster in homes and people don't care about homes and, and there's a major problem. And so Christians, we kind of just like overcorrect in a way that causes another wreck where we get super duper focused on family and we forget something bigger that the Lord has for us. Okay. Uh, we can learn a good lesson in First Samuel from a gal named Hannah who was barren and without children. And she prayed and she cried and she fasted and she longed for a child. And finally the Lord heard her prayer. And, you know, if it were you and you were barren for something like 20 years or something like that and you received a child, what would you do with that child? You know, you'd probably shelter that child and, you know, never let them walk to the other side of Walmart by themselves, you know, for the rest of their lives, you know, or just like... This is child is like, I got to just shield and protect. And what Hannah did with this child was she said, Lord, you gave me this little child, Samuel. And so now I give him back to you. Like, is that, are you catching how that's a little like crazy and maybe outside of the box? Like you finally gave me what my heart longed for with everything within me, but I'm going to turn, I'm going to give him back to you. Okay. Uh, what we're going to address a little bit in this is the idol of the family or the idol of the marriage. We see it in another barren family in the beginning of Luke with Zechariah, a priest who was given um, the same thing. They were barren maybe 40, 60 years. He was older when they finally were having uh, this miracle baby. And he had, he had elevated his thoughts and his opinions on having this baby and what maybe the community thought about him and their culture where he's a priest and they haven't had a baby. They don't have the traditional family like many of the Jews around them have. So that even when the Lord came and visited him by an angel and said, good news, you're going to have a baby, you know, he just didn't even believe it because he was just so stuck on what he thought he knew about what the family was going to be or what family would never be. And he just missed out on the blessing of just believing God. When God says something, that settles it, and we go that direction. So, um, and so we just got to, we're going to learn tonight to be careful that family doesn't become our God and our marriage doesn't become our God. And we elevate it to a position that God never intended for it as sort of the end in and of itself. Okay. But we want to learn tonight that it's the means to a far greater and um, in our notes there, you might note that God's kingdom in all of this is not subservient to the family, it doesn't bow down to the family. God's kingdom isn't, its priority isn't the serving of the family, it's vice versa. And God's kingdom is not submissive to the family. It doesn't line up under the family in the order of things. And God's kingdom is not compliant to the family. By the way, if you're ever um, like wondering on your notes, like, oh my gosh, you said it so fast, I'll never get to it. It's just very simple. The, no, the answers to the blanks are at the bottom of the sheet there in the references. So, you know, 
Can't have you guys too confused throughout the evening. That'll happen on its own. I don't need to like try to make that happen. Um, Dr. Schaefer told a great preacher at a, while they were sitting together at an Oakland A's baseball game, he said, Art, never forget that a healthy Christian family, just like a healthy Christian church, has been designed to exist for a goal outside itself. John Stott puts it similarly in his book on the church, called The Church. And I think it's so true theologically that I just shifted some words and applied it to the family. Where John Stott, Scottish preacher, just so loved and well-known, says, no self-centered, self-contained church, and let's put family in there, said so, no self-centered, self-contained family absorbed in its own parochial affairs can claim to be filled with the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, so a Spirit-filled family is a missionary family. Okay? So what we're learning from Dr. Schaefer, Pastor Stott, are that, okay, like, most of us as Christians would say, okay, we don't want to, like, disregard the family, not care about the family, who cares if it implodes and explodes and has a, you know, so we kind of knee-jerk reactions, like it's just all about the family, nothing but the family. As one guy said, us four, no more, shut the door, you know. Um, And we just miss out on this ultimate goal of God that we reach the world with the gospel and we minister to people with the gospel through our family, okay? Um, got Stott in there. In 1847, J.W. Alexander wrote that the Christian family exists not for itself. A family is never to exist for itself. It's to exist for a purpose outside of itself. Marriage and family is never to be the ultimate end. And so last week, just to quickly summarize, we studied what defines and gives the dignity and high worth to a family or to a marriage. And last week we studied number one, you might remember it, you should be able to just spout it off. The two big things were that number one, it's a sovereign design of God. Remember, God designed marriage. That gives it dignity, right? That gives it value. Number two, It's ultimately for God's glory, okay? Do you guys remember those two main points? Uh, By God's design, for God's glory. And tonight, this next part, is that it it exists for God, not for your own self-fulfillment, okay? At one Christian couples conference... A preacher said, brothers and sisters, we have a new idol in the church of Jesus Christ. We're in grave danger of becoming Protestant moralists, worshiping at the shrine of the family. And then this pastor quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, where he said, this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Okay, so we got this guy at a marriage conference, 
And he says, we are in danger of becoming very moral individuals. We look very moral. Doesn't seem like we're just total pagans. But we worship at the shrine of our family. And we compare that to a scripture that if you didn't know it came from the Bible, you think that it's just some sleazebag, you know, psychotherapist out there in the world who should be tarred and feathered because he says, hey, we're living in times that from now on, we ought to live, even if we had wives, we ought to live as if we had none. Okay? That's pretty crazy talk. But you, you got to know, that's actually in the Bible. You've probably read that verse in your Bible reading plan. Very few of us have courage to attack idolatry in the way that this conference speaker did. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul, who wrote that, and nobody else, including me, are saying that we should neglect family or neglect family responsibilities. So don't go there. I'm not going there. Paul didn't go there. Okay. It would go against all the other apost- apostolic teachings about taking care of the family and loving your wives and take, you know, bringing your children up and all of that sort of stuff. But essentially what Paul is saying is don't live your Christian life as though family is all there is or your wife is all there is. As though our experiences within our relationship of the home are the ultimate ends. All of our relationships should be lived out with the knowledge that this world in all of its forms are passing away. Donald Bloch wrote, I think it's on your notes, the proof of a Christian marriage is the willingness of the two partners to sacrifice the marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of missionaries like C.T. Studd or like, um, oh gosh, the book to the golden show, uh, Horatio, ah, gosh. I mean, honestly, if you read missionary biographies from the anything before 1920s, every one of these guys, Adoniram Judson, Horatio Spafford would be another one, okay? All these, with the cool names that sound like they were born in the 1800s, you know? Yes, you read, read your missionary biographies. These are guys that said, okay, we're going to go to the far-off shores of the world where nobody's ever heard about Jesus. And in Adoniram Judson's case, he actually asked the father-in-law to give him permission to take his daughter where she's going to die as a missionary, Like, it's going to be ugly and it's going to be harsh. Can I take your daughter with me as my wife? And that father-in-law was like, I wouldn't want anything else for her. Okay? And so you read your missionary biographies and these are guys. You look at Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot in a more modern 1950s, you know. And uh, these are people that realized, we're going to go and my wife's going to get malaria, you know, or my husband's going to be speared by headhunters. And we realize it's worth it because this little union was designed for something far greater, okay? That's the plan of God and the design of God for the glory of God. And so everyone here probably in the room are like, we're Christians, you know, and you would probably like to say, we have a Christian marriage, okay? Listen to Bloch, we're going to quote him later. 
The proof of a Christian marriage is the willingness of the two partners to sacrifice the marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. Man, even reading C.T. Studd, crazy biography, like the last 20 years of his life, he's in India as a missionary. His wife couldn't handle, couldn't handle it on her body, and she stayed in Scotland and raised money for the missions work happening down in India, and tons of headhunters are coming to Jesus, like cannibals and stuff. Okay, so there's something to learn from those that have gone before us that totally goes against a lot of our American ideals on marriage, okay? All right, that all being said, Rory, Paul, uh, Donald Bloch, C.T. Studd, Adoniram Judson, all these guys I've been mentioning, we're not promoting that in the name of ministry we just neglect and abandon family responsibilities, When you look at these guys' lives and their correspondences, that was not the message they were giving. But what Paul is saying is if the predominant occupation in our lives is our families, and that everything else, including the advancement of the kingdom of God, is subservient to family, then we have indeed elevated our families to a place they never were intended to occupy by design. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29, these verses that we have on there, by chance, Lynn's proclaim? No? Proclaim anybody? Proclaim. Heather, proclaim. You got proclaim on there? Joy, proclaim. No, okay. Yeah, throw it on there. My 14-year-old put all these verses in the thing today, so they're on there. I know. And I was like, if you don't. Okay. You know what, Lindsay? Chris, come up here. You're going to need to take over. <laughs> okay, anyways, write it, on, write it in your notes. Matthew 19, 27, Peter answers and says to Jesus, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in this regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the thrones of his glory, who have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many are her first will be last and the last will be first. So there are some who, if they didn't know who Jesus was and that he'd said that, would conclude that this is a sinful saying. It's because the image that they have in their mind of the family doesn't come from the Bible, but from Little House on the Prairie or from Leave it to Beaver or from Parenthood with Dak Shepherd or something like that. Okay, Our hearts, as John Calvin said, And as Martin Luther affirmed, our hearts are idol-making factories that take good gifts from God and make them ultimate things in our life, thereby replacing God in our affections. Tim Keller in your notes says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you you seek to give you what only God can give. So how can you identify these idols? How can you tell if you're worshiping a counterfeit God? Keller goes on to say in your notes, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. There's passages in Luke 14, Matthew chapter 10, that say that the gospel will bring separation in your family. As many of you have experienced that. You're a Christian, you're born again. And it's ostracized you from relationships within your home. And Jesus says, 
That's going to happen. Stephen Um wrote Discipleship and the Idols of Family and Culture. And in your notes, he says, what Jesus is calling us to is ultimate allegiance. He's essentially saying, to be my disciple, you must give me preeminence over and sometimes against all other relationships. In other words, our lives should be so submitted to Christ that when we put all our allegiance to him side by side with other allegiances, the difference is so great that it could be described in the black and white terminology of love and hate. So, write down Luke 14, 26. Next to, right above Stephen Um's quote there. Luke 14, 26 and 33. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 34 through 39. Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 through 22. James and John in a boat on the shore, mending their nets, their father's fishing business. It probably was their grandpa's business and their grandpa's grandpa's business, and that's what they did. They're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they hopped out of the boat, left all of that family heritage to follow Jesus, okay? Same story with Elijah, uh, or Elisha, I should say, when he was called by Elijah. He's out plowing the dad's field with 12 yoke of oxen. I mean, he had John Deere's with, right, riding on doves, right? Or with doolies, you know? And, and uh, Elijah comes and says, hey, follow me. And he said, okay, let me go say goodbye to my family. He's like, no, we don't got time for that. Come follow me. So he killed all those oxen and took the implements that they were working with and he offered all those oxen as a sacrifice to the Lord and then went and followed in the ministry, okay? So he's catching like biblical principles of like family and family heritage and like just, you know, having the ranch and having the brand and riding for the brand and, you know, having the trucking company and this, that, and the other, whatever it might be. It's like, there's actually something bigger than that, Okay. And just that the Lord would give us understanding as to maybe where we've elevated all of this family, marriage, business, whatever it might be, even just our union above Jesus. There needs to be a drastic reordering of what is most precious to us. And it may sometimes include a departure from those things that, to refu- that refuse to come under the rule of our new master. Read Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Pilgrim, he's a pilgrim, his name's Christian, he has this book, and this book is telling him that uh, destruction is coming to his city, and he's got to get out of Dodge, and so he tries to tell his family, we got to get going, and, and they're like, no way, Jose, and as he's reading the book, he realizes, like, his sin, and it puts a big burden on his back, a burden that he can hardly bear, and as he's reading more and more about this book, he's realizing his burden and destruction coming to destroy him for his burden. And he begins to tell his family all about, we're living in the city of destruction. We've got to go out of here. And they begin to laugh at him and mock him and tell him he's sick. Go to sleep. Take a nap. You'll wake up. You'll feel much better. He keeps reading the book. He keeps realizing there's something bigger than this. We've got to get out of here. Finally, Evangelist, a guy named Evangelist, points him to the road that he needs to take to get towards the celestial city and out of the city of destruction. And he begs his family, his wife and his children, come with me, we've got to get out of the city of destruction. And they say, and they just laugh at him like, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. And so he comes out to head on the path and his family's begging him, stay with us, stay with us. And he plugs his ears 
And he begins to shout, life, life, I choose life. And Christian goes on his journey. Does this sound like something foreign? Like, I don't know, this is what I haven't been reading in, you know, the book that I bought at Borders Bookstore or whatever, or, you know, the latest Kindle that came out free on the New York Times bestseller, whatever. This seems counter-biblical. You guys, this is biblical. This is what the fathers before us have believed. And yet, our American culture swung the pendulum so far that nothing comes between me and the home and the family. Um went on to say, I'm saying that the call to discipleship is a fundamental redirection of our human existence, a reorientation, an all-embracing turning about of our lives in order that our affections might be placed primarily on Christ. Now, if we confuse that and we flip-flop it, we rotate where our affections are on worldly things, earthly things, even good things, the ramifications are disastrous. And the scriptures show us, in the words of Garth Brooks, who hit the nail on the head, blood is thicker than water. We love our blood. I love my kin. But love is thicker than blood. Okay? There's something that God has done in the gospel that elevates something even greater than our blood relationships we have in the home and in the family. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 34 is another reference I'd like to give you. For the sake of time, I wish I could read through all these different passages. Little homework, sensible people, read the Bible. Go home and do this. In your notes there, we got a couple bullets of how to tell if your family is collapsing under its own weight in this area. Your family's collapsing under its own weight if the mission of God is a threat to family time. And it's considered an enemy to be avoided. Or if the value of the Lord's day becomes subservient to family day or family time. If activities in the church are neglected for pursuit of family investment, like athletics or education or skills. As Christians, we begin to become selfish and self-consumed to where all of a sudden this body life and this church and the mission of God is a threat to what we have. Parents begin to think their kids exist for their own satisfaction. And parents fear gospel imperative ministries like foster care and adoption for fear that their perfect family will be threatened. Or husbands and wives think that their spouse exists as an ultimate source of their fulfillment. After all, that's why I got married was so that I could spend the rest of my life having you make me happy. That's when you know families are beginning to collapse under their own weight. And there will be ramifications. You'll begin to see it in your marriage, in the way you treat each other, in the way your kids behave, in the way that they begin to follow the Lord or reject the Lord, the way they treat one another, your involvement with people in the community, the way you react during political issues. It all is tied together biblically. Art Azurdius said, I believe it's in your notes. Marriage feeds off of experience outside of marriage. It cannot stand alone. It needs the network of more important commitments to make the commitment of exclusive lifelong fidelity work. 
And then Donald Bloch again, a little footnote there tells you he's a Reformed theologian, professor emeritus at Dubuque Presbyterian Seminary and a longtime voice for orthodoxy in the United Church of Christ, authors of Essentials of Evangelical Theology and a seven-volume Christian Foundation series. Not a bad guy to listen to, okay? Bloch says, might have a weird last name. I'm not sure what's up with that. But both husband and wife are servants of Christ. And it's to him and not to each other that they must look to for the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. We should not marry for love, but for the sake of kingdom service. At the same time, we should marry with love, he says. So realizing that there's something that all of this, yeah, marry with love, but not for that person to give you what only Jesus can give you as the best lover ever. Realizing there's something ultimate and bigger in our marriage. We are purpose-created creatures. Romans 11.36 For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Guys, when we start looking at the Bible verses about blessings to our home and blessings to our ventures in life and, you know, um, great blessings and prosperity towards us. Those are in the Bible, actually, wonderful blessings, and we all love them, and I hope it for you. I pray it over you. Blessings and prosperity for you. But people take those little verses, and we use this phrase all the time. They use these little verses, and they strip them out of their context like little evangelical cigarettes, and they smoke on them, and they take a drag, and then they just toss them wherever they want, Okay? But when we take them out of their context, we just completely divorce them from everything that God has designed for them to be. And all of those passages that, you, that we love are connected to verses about it all being for the glory of God, it all being so that the world would know Jesus and salvation from sin. And these things, blessings, are means to that end, okay? In Colossians 1, 16 through 18, just the last little phrase of this two-verse section just says that in all things he may have the preeminence. In Isaiah 43, the wild animals cry out, or rather it says the wild animals glorify God. In Luke chapter 1, the angels cry out glory to God in the highest. Israel as a nation was to bring glory to God. He's revealed to us in Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega Everything was created by him and then shoots right back to him for his glory. It's the same reason why God created the church. You guys, not the building, but you guys, the church. It's why God created man and women individually. We studied that last week. And it's why God created marriage and the family. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Okay, talked about it a couple Sundays ago. You hear it from time to time. Uh, a catechism, you guys, if you don't know what it is, it's basically a series of questions. that are, It's like a game show with your kids and with your family and with your disciples. And you just ask a question, and then they hit the buzzer, and they go, what is to glorify God and enjoy him together, Alex, you know, or whatever. And it's just these little questions that help us know God and understand the Bible. Okay? And the first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what's the chief end of man? What that means is, 
Why are we here? What's our purpose in life? Why did God create us? Is there meaning to life? And then the answer that the little kids and the disciples give is, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And just so you know, that's not without some fun stuff too, and to enjoy Him forever, okay? To glorify God and to enjoy God. God's glory and our joy are very tightly connected, you guys, okay? Now, what does this have to do with my family? (laughs) Everything. It's for this purpose that the family exists. If you understand this and the implications of it, it'll profoundly affect how you do family. How do we glorify God in our marriage? By carrying out your marriage duties in such a way that you are a picture of the greater, more glorious marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. Jeffrey Bromley wrote, As God made man in his own image, so he made marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. Sorry, I didn't have that in your notes. I was like, who's this Bromley character? No, I'm just kidding. Um, So, our marriage is not for sociological purposes primarily, but for doxological purposes. You're like, I don't know what half of that thing means. Okay, so first of all, Marriage is not for society purposes and just interpersonal relationship type stuff, primarily. It's for doxology purposes, and that means praise. Doxa means to praise. Marriage is for, ultimately, the praise of God. It's not for, ultimately, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, self-absorption, but represents something greater than us, that's eternal and infinitely more glorious. You guys, as I talk about this, this is a theology that I've held for many, many years. And as you know me, am I a guy that lives with his wife and his kids as if I'm just abandoning them for the sake of the ministry and I just live a life haphazardly, like neglecting my wife, you know, so that I can just be some sort of missionary or something, or I'm neglecting my children, or in fact, I hate my wife and I hate my kids, and Jesus said to hate your wife and kids, so I hate them. Like, that's not how I live this, because it's not what the Bible says. The Bible's not taking us that direction, just hate them, neglect them. The Bible says that if there's ever a choice between the two, the love that you have for your wife, kids, family, family goals, family, you know, a sense that you would take, should almost seem like hate, compared to the love that you have for Jesus. This is a family in a proper biblical, theological perspective. It's genuinely Christian. Believing this will not hurt your family in any way. And in your notes, it will actually elevate its dignity without diminishing it to idolatry. Read your Bible Wherever people are living in idolatry, it brings death and destruction. It's so destructive that the reason the captivities happened to Israel and Judah were because of idolatry, because they didn't trust God. They wanted to trust other stuff. And they were warned and they were pled with to stop worshiping these other things. Just worship God who created you and loved you and brought you through the Red Sea and cares about you. And the prophets would say, if you don't stop worshiping idols... 
your beloved child that you love, there's going to be such a famine in the land that you're going to be fighting over who gets to eat your child. And you know what happened? You read the Old Testament, happened in the Old Testament. Women would fight over whose child they were to eat first. We'll eat my child second. Let's eat yours first. We'll eat mine second. It's so sad and it's so disgusting. And the, the famine was so severe because of idolatry that, you know, you could buy a, a donkey's head for like $1,000, you know, and you could buy a thimble of dove poop for like $500. And that was like the delicious options that you had for the evening. And it seems like no big deal, just you worship your way and I'm going to go worship on this high hill, this God over here. And in the end, it brought cannibalism and starvation and death and slaughter. And it didn't end there. Later on in Israel's history, in the War of the Jews in 70 AD, after they crucified Jesus because they found another God that they wanted besides Jesus, um, Read Josephus' War of the Jews, okay? Josephus' War of the Jews. I read it while I was in Jerusalem. And it is so disgusting that I was trembling reading a couple thousand-year-old manuscript, okay? And what would happen? Same thing. Women are fighting over eating their babies, and the description of it is, is disgusting. But all of it comes down to idolatry brings destruction, Okay? Right, write that down, take a little note to remind you in case you didn't know. Okay, sorry, a little George straight. You got it in your notes there. John Piper, in 1995, wrote this poem for his son at his son's wedding, okay? And it's just a good, helpful tool for what in the world is Rory talking about right now. For Karsten Luke Piper at his wedding to Rochelle Ann Orvis, May 29th, 1995. Yes, love her. Love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not, but lest your love become a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. It's not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall, as in humanity before, a likeness of your God, a door, above your best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace, and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow. Beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade. For being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift to give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go love her more by loving less. Go love her more by loving less. Love your kids more by loving them less than you love God. Love your wife more. Love your business more by loving it less. Idolatry always ends in death and destruction. Never the way that you would think. 
but true, unadulterated worship of God and things properly lined up by his design only causes us to reach that summit of marital bliss so joyfully. So joyfully. Okay, you guys ready for a little break? I don't even know how long that was. Let's see. That was like still 50 minutes. Serious? Okay. Uh, Little break, little lemonade, little food on the plate, and uh, we'll come back in just a second. Little bathroom break, and we'll come back in just a second. If you want to write in your notes Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And this next part, part four, the spirit, being spirit-filled in marriage, or filled with the spirit in marriage. In your notes there, you've got Peter Marshall, the formal, formal chaplain of the United States Senate, who wrote, marriage is not a federation of two sovereign states. It is a union domestic social, spiritual, and physical. It is the fusion of two hearts, the coming together of two tributaries, which coming together after marriage will flow together in the same direction, carrying the same burdens of responsibility and obligation. Marriage is a oneness, divine and indivisible. Divine and indivisible. It was not good that man should be alone, so out of Adam's side he fashioned a suitable and comparable counterpart. God made this intention in marriage abundantly clear that there was to be intimacy, divine and indivisible. A oneness between the two. Such a mystery, Paul would call it a mystery, and yet very real divine and indivisible. But that intimacy seems so rare. Fastest growing marital category in 25 years is divorced persons, according to the United States Census Bureau. Professor Lawrence Stone and Uh, Professor Lawrence Stone was a distinguished family historian from Princeton University, wrote that the scale of marital breakdown in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent that I know of. There's been nothing like it in the last 2,000 years and probably longer. There was a Newsweek article that said, Saving the Family was the title, And writes, the home is the most dangerous place to be outside of riots and wars. Here's the domestic violence uh, quote that I meant to say, and I was off by a bit. 30% of marriages experience some kind of domestic violence. Two million marriages use lethal weapons on each other every year. 20% of police officers killed in the line of duty are killed answering calls regarding family fights. Six to 15 million women are battered each year in the U.S. One police officer said, this is probably the highest unreported crime in the country. And yet our great United States chaplain wrote that marriage was divine and indivisible, that there was companionship and oneness 
but get your Glock out, you know, and tilt it to the side. You know, uh, what, what happened? God bless the new couple, Adam and Eve. If there was ever a new couple who had a chance to make it, right? Who was it? Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. But they fell. They lost their innocence, which was not theirs alone to lose. In the fall, they plunged humanity into the curse of sin and the human race into fallenness. Consequently, what do human relationships see? Adam and Eve run from God. Adam and Eve run from each other. They had offspring, and one cruelly murders his younger brother. This isn't just in the modern local news. This is in uh, the book of the Bible. Was it because Cain and Abel had watched the Dark Knight trilogy movies? Fratricide, or killing one's brother, is one of the earliest recorded sins in the Bible. Was it because they played Grand Theft Auto? but because their mother and father gave them a depraved heart. And Adam and Eve reproduced everyone after their own kind. You simply read the book of Genesis and it shows fall after fall after fall and the devastating consequences that sin has had on the human race and the human family. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his sons have a rift in their relationship due to drunkenness and some kind of sexual indiscretion. Abraham and his nephew Lot have an impasse that makes them separate from one another because of the fall. In Genesis 16, Abraham abdicates his responsibilities and heeds the counsel of his wife's going into her handmaiden for procreative purposes because of the fall. In Genesis 19, Lot offers his own daughters to homosexuals of Sodom for sexual exploitation. The fall. In Genesis 20, Abraham, fearing for his life, deceitfully refers to Sarah as his sister, putting her sexual purity in danger. The fall. In Genesis 22, there's a rift in the family between Sarah and Hagar, the two women from whom Abraham had produced children. The fall. In Genesis 26, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Isaac, trying to pass off Rebekah as his sister, uh, compromises her sexual purity fall. In Genesis 27, Jacob, in team with his mother, deceives his father to steal his brother's firstborn blessing, the result of the fall. Esau, in turn, tries to kill his younger brother, his deceitful brother, the fall. This is kind of like legends of the fall. You know, that's what we're talking about right here. In Genesis 29, Jacob Jacob's uncle Laban deceives his nephew only to turn around in the next chapter and be outdone by Jacob who gets even with his uncle because of the fall. In Genesis 34, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, is raped and her father does nothing about it. Results of the fall. Her brother in retaliation slaughter every male in the entire town and burn and pillage it for wealth. It's a picture of the fall. In Genesis 35, Jacob's eldest son, Reuben, commits incest with one of his father's wives, Bilhah, the fall. In Genesis 37, Jacob's sons have sibling rivalry, so they plot to kill their younger brother, Joseph, who's either, who is their father's favorite, a problem in and of itself, sells him into slavery and return home to cruelly misrepresent Joseph's death to their father, the fall. In Genesis 38, Jacob's son Judah impregnates his own daughter-in-law Tamar, but is surprised by this news because he thought he had visited a prostitute that night. 
the fall. With the grave of the patriarch Jacob still warm, the brothers start their lying and scheming all over again. And you say, all of this is in the Bible, Rory? No, all of this is in the first book of the Bible. Okay? Makes desperate housewives look modest. And you might say it kind of makes my family look good. So what happened to God's original design? What happened to the glory of Genesis 2? It was shattered by sin. The same thing that assaults your marriages every day. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The one that you married is a sinner. We fight. We lie. We cheat. Manipulate. Dispute. Distrust. Lust for our own way. We are thoughtless, insensitive, self-serving, self-asserting, self-absorbed. You say, how do you know about that about me? It takes one to know one, okay? Talking about myself, if I'm walking by my own resources. Talking about this as a sinner to sinners. We've inherited a disposition from our very first parents that war against the harmony of our relationships. Remember, marriage has great dignity because it's a design of sovereign God. Remember that marriage has great dignity because it has an ultimate purpose of being for the glory of God. Marriage has great dignity and value, third, and we just talked about it, because it exists for a purpose beyond itself. It's not, God is not subservient to the family, but it is subservient to God. And then something that causes our marriages to have great value and worth and dignity is that it's designed to have the Holy Spirit of God filling and overflowing it daily. Something in your notes that I want you to kind of remember is that marriage can be approximated through the gracious, Spirit-empowered means of the gospel. Marriage can be approximated back to that Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 type state through the gospel. You can read every book there is to read on family, attend every conference on the family, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't get down to the root of sin and our fallen condition and our need for salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the power of the Spirit, then you'll be missing the mark and you'll be found wanting. Many Christian books, you'll go check them out or get them on your Kindle or begin to listen to them on Audible, and you'll find a lacking chapter on how to have the gospel power lived out in our families' lives. Our churches have lost the vision of gospel empowering us on how to live and how to obey and how to treat one another. And in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Paul says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What Paul's saying there in Galatians chapter 3 is, we know that we are saved by grace through faith. And that God has transformed us individually as sinners from... uh, wretches who once were lost 
to be found by God's grace and to be transformed and regenerated by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. So we know that to be true. So Paul says, so why are you continuing life going back to rules and regulations and trying to perfect yourself for the rest of your life by more rules and works and practical programs? And the same is true for our marriages. We were saved and we were born again by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And that's the same thing that's going to save our marriages and our homes and get us to that celestial city, that great summit of marital bliss. It's a work of the power of the Holy Spirit in the work of the gospel. Write down in your notes Romans seven eighteen through 24. Romans 8, 2 through 5. Two sections that affirm that apart from the gospel, any other successful family living that you experience is an accident. Out there, there's some good stuff happening in homes that are not Christian, but it's by God's design in the sense that they're just made in the image of God, and they might be a very distorted mirror reflecting God, but they're, just, they're reflecting it distortedly nonetheless. And there's some good things happen up there, but it is by no doing of them walking hand in hand with the Lord um, for their good and God's glory, okay? Ultimately, in our marriages, we don't need more techniques or methods or practical helps. We need the transforming power of the gospel. It is the way to overcome the effects of the fall. And so marriage in its original glory can be brought close to us through the gospel. You got a quote there, I believe, by Tim Savage. This says that the best human advice may bring momentary relief, but it can never produce a sustained marital assent. We need more, much more. We need a miracle of transformation at the core of our beings. A miracle only Christ can perform. One preacher on marriage said, you do not need more information. Your problem is not that you lack information on marriage or data on marriage. The problem is is that you lack the strength to live it out. And so as Savage just says, we need a transformation at the core of our beings. We need a new heart, and we need power to live out what we already know. And that's what the new covenant of the gospel is all about. The new covenant was not written on cold, dead stones like the Ten Commandments, but the new covenant was written on the hearts of our flesh and giving us life and hope. Also, Savage writes in your notes there, the power of the Spirit This point can hardly be stressed enough. Marital partnership needs renewing by a supernatural work of God's spirit. He writes that recently a friend whose marriage was at the point of collapse returned from the therapist with an optimistic report. Ah, the counselor really made me feel better about myself. Although the words were encouraging on one level, They were the equivalent of spreading icy on a moldy cake. While tasty, it camouflaged a deeper problem. While putting my friend in touch with her feelings, it does not put her in touch with her God. 
While making her feel good about herself, it does not in fact make her good. It is only when we confess the spiritual nature of our marital problems, the internal defect at the core of our beings, that we will yearn for the supernatural assistance offered by Christ. We need a makeover of our inmost hearts, a coronary transformation by the healing touch of the Spirit of Christ. Guys, this is nothing new. This is the new covenant prophesied of in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, brought to bear on our hearts by Jesus, who lived it and spoke it forth and and brought it to bear in the sending of the Holy Spirit after his death and burial and resurrection. This is something that brings the whole meta-narrative of Scripture together from Genesis to Malachi and from Matthew to Revelation. This is new covenant, total Christian living. Write in your notes Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, a prophecy of the new covenant and us getting a new heart to live out the way God's designed us to live. This radical transformation of the heart takes place when a man or woman puts their faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers his people towards obedience. Dave Harvey wrote this book, and heck, the title itself is worth buying the book. The title is, When Sinners Say I Do. Okay, I just love it. Like, and I just love our pre-marriage couple over here. We've got Isaac and Matt over there, you know, and I'm just so excited for you guys, and you're just so innocent, and you don't even know. Look into my eyes. See how hollow? No, I'm just kidding. Totally joking. Mm, mm, mm. Love you so much. You love, you love me? I love you. Okay. All right. But what I love is that, you know, when we do pre-marriage counseling, and just people are so just elated and excited, and they should be, right? And then the wedding day, and it's just like, oh, it's just so beautiful, and the dancing, and the tuxedos, you know, and the corsages, and the cake, and the, and the two people standing next to each other on the top of the cake, you know, husband and wife, and like, that, they'll never be split apart, you know, and all of that stuff, and I just love this title, it's like, but that's the same day that these two people who are sinners said that they do, you know, and it's like, that adds a whole other level that we weren't thinking about with the tuxes and the corsages and the flowers and the boutonnieres and this and that, and the, you know, it's like, you it's a pretty big factor in the whole day and what's happening there, okay? And so, forget whatever Dave Harvey said. Just underline the, quote, the title of his book and let's move on. No, I'm joking. He wrote, and by the way, I ordered um, just about five copies of most of the books that I'm using in my research here. And they'll be here like tomorrow or something. And so I'll have them at the next class. And the ones that people seem to want, I'll just order more. We can lend and send and and share, and this and that and the other. Um, But this will be one of the books that's there. Dave Harvey writes, the benefits of the new birth. We, We know it as born again, right? Being saved and being born again. The benefits of the new birth. The pardon of our sins and our relationship with Christ, they don't remove us from the battle. Instead, they guarantee our victory. Informed by the word of God, And empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can make your battles fewer, shorter, and not merely less harmful, but actually redemptive, allowing your marriage to steadily grow in sweetness. 
What was the word that you were supposed to write in there? Was it redemptive? Oh, <laughs> I didn't even know. And it's like redemptive. That's what it is. Like God can actually use our crud for our good. And the book of Ephesians talks about that. When he talks about the dark things that we have hidden away in the dark places of our heart that need to be exposed, the light of Jesus exposes those dark places and those hidden secret things that are so shameful and that we're so, that we've just been hiding. And we think that by those things being exposed that it's like, oh no, everyone's going to hate me and like God's not going to love me anymore and this and that. But what Ephesians says is it actually exposes those things and then takes those things and uses them for our good and for his glory in the world. Because it gives us a testimony. And we get to rejoice in our salvation. And we get to share those things with others who are like, I was struggling with the same thing. How did you get deliverance? And how has God been using that in your life? And now there's this whole redemptive purpose behind it. Here in Ephesians chapter 5, I don't know if you knew that we were going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The Apostle Paul links the power of the Holy Spirit with the command for wives to submit. So we're going to spend some time in the weeks to come talking about submission. And we're going to spend some time in the weeks to come talking about headship, all right, Uh, and loving what husbands are supposed to do. But tonight, to kind of illustrate this point of the need for the Holy Spirit, we're going to just talk about this little point of this call from Paul for wives to submit, okay? Now, we all know Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, right? Like, Husbands, you've been like quoting it to your wives forever, right? Oh, honey, there's this memory verse that I had when I was in Awana as a kid, and I just want to quote it to you right now. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Oh, aren't you blessed by that, you know? Okay, well, you might love that verse, and there's a lot we're going to talk about it later. And by the way, husbands, it's actually not for you to quote to your wife, okay? The actual original Greek, it ain't you saying it to her, okay? It's actually the Lord having a word of encouragement for her. That's a whole other story. This is weeks to come. What are we at here? Two? Probably one, huh? For real? Oh, Adam, you're breaking my heart. We have special code on how long I've been going. Bet you'll never guess what it is. Four minutes, for sure. Okay. All right. Here's, now, you guys know the verse, right? Wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. There's a huge problem with this verse, okay? The word submit doesn't appear in the original text. What are we going to do with that? Oh, yeah, you're off the hook, Elizabeth. <laughs> Tyler, Tyler starts crying. It's like... <laughs> right. Okay. Now, submitting to one another is a participle. Okay, just help me geek out for one second. A participle does not stand on its own, but it stands on something else in language. What we're looking for here is a main verb, okay? All right? Um, We're looking for a main verb. What does this word submitting in our English in verse 22 connect to, okay? So what we got to do, according to English and grammar and blah, 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 is we want to go back in the text to find a main verb on what this participle is connected to, okay? So let's go back. Um, let's go back one verse, Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Oh, we got a problem there. Again, it's a participle that doesn't stand on its own. So we go back again to find a verb. 
Nothing in verse 20, nothing in verse 19, and then in verse 18 we find it. There are two verbs, okay? Number one is stop getting drunk with wine where there's debauchery, recklessness, and wastefulness, okay? So stop, stop getting drunk. That's the first verb. Some of you are really disappointed right now with that. That's a whole other conference, okay? Second thing, though, the second verb is be filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Be filled, be continually filled is what the language is. It speaks of continually positioning yourself under the source of the filling, okay? Be filled or continually filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? What does being filled with the Holy Spirit look like? Ephesians chapter 5 shows us in verse 19, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, something that you're going to do as a Christian is, verse 19, you're going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So one thing that you're going to do as a Christian, you're going to start talking to people in almost song-like fashion about Jesus. You're going to speak to one another. Secondly, you're going to worship. You're going to worship God. In verse 20, you're going to give thanks. An unthankful heart is a sign of someone who's never been born again. Verse 21, you're going to submit to one another in the fear of God. Okay, so the fourth mark of someone who's filled with the Spirit is that they'll submit. Okay, they'll submit to one another. One of the marks of being spirit-filled and controlled is submission. So the command in Ephesians chapter 5 is not submission. The command is, it's in verse 18, be filled up with the Holy Spirit. So it's okay to tell your wife, go get filled up with the Holy Spirit, honey. And she can say, you go get filled up with the Holy Spirit too. And then you go and you spend time with Jesus and get filled up with the Holy Spirit, okay? But the fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit... It's in verse 21 that you'll submit to one another. Again, I'm going to say it again. One of the marks of a spirit-filled person is that they are a submissive person. When people don't want to be submissive to their employer, their pastor, their government, or their parent, there's a lack of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life and them being filled with the Spirit. Now, in another week, we're going to talk about submission. Are there times that we shouldn't submit to our husband? Are there times that we shouldn't submit to our government? Are there times that we shouldn't submit to our pastor? Yes, there are, but that's not the norm, all right? In general, there ought to be submission to the governing authorities and the rulers that God has placed over us in our life, okay? Um, In the book of Colossians, Jesus tells the same commandments for husbands to love their wives and do not be bitter to them. How can a husband love his wife and not be bitter at her? How can a wife, once again called to submit to her husband? Well, the book is written to, in Colossians 1.4, it's written to men and women of faith. In chapter 1, verse 6 of Colossians, men and women who knew the truth, men and women who were reconciled, men and women who received Jesus Christ as Lord. They were a new creation, And that made them totally different as husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, and children in the relationships that they were to live out. We can never do the things that God calls us to do just by reading about it and trying really hard to do it. It just won't happen. Show me the horse whisperer 
and tell me to go whisper sweet nothings into a wild stallion's ear to break it, I could never do it. But put the spirit of Robert Redford into me, and all of a sudden I'm riding that gelding into the wild blue yonder, okay? In the same way, we are shown in the Bible, we got to live, husbands, represent Jesus in this world by loving your wife like Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her, sacrificial death to self type love. Never going to happen. But put the spirit of Christ in me, and I'm going to have the enablement to do just what I'm called to do. Obedience to instruction for family life can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So husbands, the reason you're acting the way that you do, so harsh and so angry and so difficult in loving your wife, is that you're not living a continually spirit-filled, word-indwelt life. And wives, the reason it's so easy to, uh, to live according to the view of the world not respecting your husband is because you're not living the continually spirit-filled, word-indwelt life. What is being asked of Christian wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22? To voluntarily submit to her husband. This is an exhortation giving to wives, and we're going to look at it with a lot of care because it's been abused along with many fine Christian-loving women. John Calvin said, Nothing is more contrary to the human spirit than for one to submit to another. It's just contrary to our human sinful nature to submit to one another. By nature, man does not submit. By nature, man is independent, chooses his own thing. Same for women. That's what makes submission a supernatural activity. That's why Ephesians 5.21 that says, submit to one another in the fear of God requires being filled with the Spirit. Just like wives submitting to your husband is a work of the Spirit as well. Alistair Begg said, and I believe it's in your notes, we have the pattern given to us in the Bible, but we can't see it through. The pattern is not given in isolation from the power. We're given all sorts of commands in the Bible, but the command is never given by itself for you to just go ahead and white-knuckle it and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If that's where you're at, you've missed the surrounding verses of the command, whatever command it is. The command is always surrounded. It's within the loop with the motivation and the power behind how to fulfill that command and why you would fulfill that command. Some wives are naturally more talented and intelligent and spiritually mature than their husbands. They have more instinctive leadership qualities than their husbands. So how in the world could a wife possibly plunge herself into this position of submitting to this character through the means of the new covenant position of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By submission that's been purchased for you by the redemptive work of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is submission understood in light of the relation to the love of Jesus. Will you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1? I don't know if we've got it 
trusting my 14-year-old son to put it in there, and he's an amazing servant, but sometimes we miss him. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It's not that. (laughs) See, this makes this seem like, oh, great, we're only at, okay. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So first of all, we got wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, if you didn't know how to read the Bible contextually, you'd just be kind of like, I guess I'll do that. It's a tall order for sure. But when you throw that word likewise in there, it makes you ask what? Like. Like what? Right? Like what? And it makes you look back. Okay? Well, let's look back then. That was chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go back. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself who judged righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Then we get to chapter 3, right? Verse 1. Wives... Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of your wives. So what does Peter tell wives there? Wives, look to Jesus, who is God and is absolutely 100% totally equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit in value and worth, and yet had a role within that trio to come to earth and to voluntarily submit himself and take the position of a servant and let his own creation slaughter him in open and naked shame. His own friends betrayed him that he just ate dinner with the night before. And even told, oh, and even told him, we have battery. Okay, good. David's like, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. Just mute my mic. He even told him, you're going to betray me. And they're like, no, we won't. And then we totally did. You know, he willingly laid his life down. He willingly laid his back to the Roman whip. He willingly laid his hands down to the Roman nails. He willingly laid his life down for his bride, the church. And now Peter says, you know what, wives, you got to call on your life and you're going to display Jesus to the world in doing it, just like Jesus did it, and he committed his soul to him who judges righteously, willingly submit yourselves to your husband, even if they're a tyrannical jerk, and Jesus is going to receive the glory, and God's going to receive the glory, and you can trust your soul, and you can trust it all to him, because God is going to judge. He'll judge your husband. He judges righteously. And so, do you see how we're given a call to submit, or you gals are in this case? And the motivation is given to it just a few verses beforehand, and you may have missed it before. 
We'll never begin to understand how to live out family life unless we see these truths being framed in these terms, the terms of God's redemptive empowerment. We're almost done, and we've got a giant quote that has rocked my world, and it's like one of the last things on your page. This is from Paul Tripp in his book, What Did You Expect? (laughs) Isn't that a great book on marriage? Like, I'm struggling in my home. Oh, here's a great book by this awesome gospel-centered marriage counselor. Here you go. What did you expect? (laughs) And then in a footnote, see when sinners say I do by Dave Harvey. You know, it's like, think about it. Think, think about it. Think about it. Think, think about it. Okay. Listen to what he says in this book. Paul Tripp, amazing Christian gospel counselor. When we see worship and the power of the Holy Spirit as being central to the dignity of the high worth of our home, fights, struggles, and conflict are no longer big old bummers, but are actually moments of opportunity for ministry. That's not even in your notes to underline, is it? Will you underline that? Underline, moments of opportunity for ministry. So just to go back, a little half sentence there. Fights, struggles, and conflict are no longer big old bummers, but are actual moments of opportunity to minister to somebody. If you minimize the heart struggle that both of you have carried into your marriage, here's what will happen. You will tend to turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. He has chosen you to be one of his regular tools of change. So he will cause you to see, hear, and experience your spouse's need for change so that you can be an agent of his rescue. Often in these God-given moments of ministry, rather than serving God's purpose, we get angry because somehow our spouse is in the way of what we want. This leads to the second thing that happens. The reason we turn moments of ministry into moments of anger is that we tend to personalize what is not personal. I'm going to say it again so you'll underline it. The reason we turn moments of ministry into moments of anger is that we tend to personalize what is not personal. At the end of this bad day at work, your husband doesn't say to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll take my bad day out on my wife so that her day gets as wrecked as mine. No, the trouble you're experiencing is not about you directly. Yes, it is your trouble, because this angry man is your husband. But what you're experiencing is not personal in terms of conscience intentionality. You're living with a sinner. So you'll be experiencing, or rather, so you will experience his sin. Now, when you personalize what is not personal, you tend to be adversarial in your response. And when that happens... What motivates you is not the spiritual need of your spouse that God's revealed, but your spouse's offense against you, your schedule, or your peace, etc. 
So your response is not a for him response, but an against him response. Rather than wanting to minister to him, what you actually want to do is just get him out of your way so you can go back to whatever it was you're engaged in beforehand. Let's be honest. All of us have been there. Because we've turned a moment of ministry into a moment of anger by personalizing what is not personal, we are adversarial in our response. And because we are, we settle for quick situational solutions that do not get to the heart of the matter. Rather than searching for ways to help, we tell the other to get a grip. We attempt to threaten them into silence. Or we get angry and turn a moment of weakness into a major confrontation. This is one place where I think the Bible is so helpful. The world of the Bible is like your world. Messy and broken. The people of the Bible are like you and your spouse. Weak and failing. The situations of the Bible are like yours, complicated and unexpected. The Bible just isn't a cosmetic religious book. It will shock you with its honesty about what happens in the broken world in which we live. From the sibling homicide of Cain to the money-driven betrayal of Judas, the blood and guts of a broken world are strewn across every page. The honesty of God about the address where we all live is itself an act of love and grace. He sticks our head through the biblical people so that we'll be forced to see the world as it really is, not as we fantasize it to be. He does this so that we will be realistic in our expectations, then humbly reach out for the help that he alone is able to give us. Remember that first part when I was kind of quoting all the little things that happened in Genesis, and it's like, this is like a sick and twisted book, Genesis, right? It was like a peephole into the lives of humanity from its very conception. And that's the reality of the stuff that goes on in 2021 Primeville. The stuff that comes into my office for marriage counseling is the stuff of the book of Genesis. And the reality for you guys, you wonderful little pre-marriage counseling, is for you guys to be able to say, And it's so sweet. Like, it's awesome. I love that you love each other, and I love my wife, and it's just so wonderful, and don't ever lose that great romantic passion in the beginning. First love, right? But to realize this is the potential. The potential for our marriage is the Genesis junk, and the Exodus junk, and the Leviticus junk, all the way to the 2021 Prineville junk. And so we got to realize we're a couple of sinners that are getting ready to get married, and we all got to realize we're a couple of sinners that got married. And now the Lord wants to use his grace and his mercy to save us from ourselves. <laughs> What's so special about the Christian marriage? The presence of a divine person that is in operation in every Christian husband and every Christian wife. I think I'm done. I mean, I've got a, lot more, a couple more pages, but I'm done there. Did I get to that last little bullet quote? It was, it was savage, Okay. Okay, the God who can turn something as ugly as a crucifixion into something as beautiful as a resurrection can surely provide for the revival of our marriages. When the power of the resurrection is applied to the hearts of husband and wives, even the worst interpersonal fractures can be mended. Amen? All right, so it's 8, 12, okay? 
Will you guys just do me a solid, take a tiny little break, get some food, get some lemonada, and just let me go over the questions with you, okay? Let me just, let me just read through the questions and just maybe do like one little special emphasized, okay? Is that okay? If you got to leave, you got to leave, and there's no condemnation whatsoever, but um, I think it's going to be helpful to kind of go through the notes and prepare you for the questions that I'd like you to think about. So uh, take a three-minute little break and grab some crackers, cookies, and think I see pork rinds back there. No, it's just a bowl of tortilla chips. Pork rinds next week, guys. Got to have them. Okay, just kidding. Take a little break, guys, real quick. Okay, guys, uh, we'll just go through these questions. That might have been two minutes, but I've seen people, like, sneaking out that door, and I'm like, okay. Lindsay, come on up here. She is so excited. Oh, yes, Jess, I told you I would need reminding. Um, Just, hey, anyone leaving, just quick, here's a sign-up sheet for the August 6th dinner. I talked to my good friend, Chris Cross. He's coming to speak at it, and then Sunday, that next Sunday, and so I'm super excited to have him, and uh, so get signed up for that, $60 on August 6th, and there's six, what am I missing? At six o'clock. Okay. It's up here on the pulpit. You guys can come up and sign up. You can sign up online also. Oh, yes. Thank you. The deadline is July 30th uh, because the event center need, oh, the caterers need to start getting prepared uh, with all the foods. So, all right, guys, thank you so much for sticking around longer than anticipated and um, try not to keep you longer than we need to. So week two questions, I kind of broke them up into the two parts of tonight. First of all, marriage and the family being subservient to God. Uh, question, very embarrassed, that's a lowercase w, it just drives me crazy, little type things like that, so forgive me. Would it be a detrimental error to view your marriage and family as the most important thing in the universe? Would it be a detrimental error to view your marriage and family as the most important thing in the universe? Are there any ways, number two, that you so focused on your family, I think that was supposed to say that you are so focused on your family, that God's kingdom is subservient to it? What are ways that you sacrifice your marriage or family for the kingdom of God? If not, what could be some ways that the worldly priorities in family life need to be reordered and come into submission to God. Number four, is there anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, life would hardly feel worth living? Okay, so this just kind of helps us understand and, and take stock of the idols in our life. Um, you know, all of us, just the things that we just, we're not going to let them go. Like whatever God says, like, no, sorry, Lord, you're gonna have to deal with it because this is me and this is who I am and I'm going to do this. And like, so what are those things that no matter what, like God's going to have to bow down. Okay. Those are idols. Okay. 
Um, Lindsay, what just thoughts do you have as we read through those four questions? Anything at all? Just thoughts. There's no question, just any thoughts. I think there's a microphone right there. Talking to my cheek mic. <laughs> no, go ahead. I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> no thoughts. Well, you did a good job. Oh, I did a good job, guys. I did a good job. <laughs> I think you have thoughts. You got a million thoughts. What do you think? What do you think of my teaching, the first one? Was it a good one? The first teaching? Yeah. Tonight. The first one. The, tonight. The first one tonight? Yeah, the first one tonight. <laughs> it was great. Okay. Man, guys, I was a little nervous there for a second. Um, I think these are really good questions. Like, I mean, just... Besides, the, t- besides the typo and, like, all that. On number four, is there anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, life would hardly feel worth living? If I lost all my family that would be rough. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is a... that uh, the question would be asked? So is that idolatry if you lost all your family? Um, how would that be idolatry? I mean, that's like, man, they're your kids and they're your wife. And Think through this with me, guys. Like, it's okay to process this stuff, okay? I'm there with you. Would, would it ever be okay for that to be, like, despair? I think that that would be okay to despair. I mean, you see it in the scriptures that depression and despair and grief is a very real emotion that people go through. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, um, because we talked a little bit about this at our conference this last, you know, we heard at our conference this last week too. Um, But the fact that like when God is the creator and he has creation rights over us and he has, and then we've also submitted ourselves as bond servants to Christ that our lives are his, the whole part of it is his. And so if he, even though that would be difficult, he promises to walk us through that. So if he, said if he decided that that would be my life um he would i would have to trust him like he demands like all of his past faithfulness demands my present trust so if that were to happen i mean that would be a struggle like that right there just thinks like i think like oh so then is my family an idol like if i because I do feel like I would probably fall into that depression. But um, what would be a sign of the idolatry? Like, at what point does it go from, like, absolute terror and tra- just, like, the tragedy and the, that it would just rip your heart and just be so painful? But what point does it go from, like, absolutely understandable grief and anguish? How, what's the possibility at what point does it go to become, like, I don't trust God? And what I would say is, because um, we're talking of an extreme, right, at this, in this case. Like, so my wife and kids died. Um, and so there's no God. I don't believe in God. He would never do something like that. And so then you begin to worship at the altar of, worldly um, 
like, philosophies was, of the world rather than still trusting in the sovereign God who's over even that tragedy in your life and yeah. trusting that he works all things. We know that he works all things according to the good of those who... And so no longer do I trust that he works all things according to the good because he took that thing I can't live without. Now, um, either I don't believe in God anymore or I'm going to take my own life because he's not worth being trusted. And so that's just that moment where it goes from being like, this is like, it's okay. Like the Lord comforts, comforts us in our times of anguish, but then we've kicked it to another level to where, and you're not even worth being trusted anymore, God. I'm going to trust myself. And so I'm going to take myself out of the world or I'm going to trust some other philosophy rather than you. And so that's where it has shown that there was an unhealthy level in the life. So that's total extreme type stuff. Sorry, that was really extreme. I Thanks for bringing that up. I was hoping no well, one was even thinking I was just going to say Job would be a great example of suffering in the midst of horrible, horrific tragedy. Yeah. Um, to kind of just tag on kind of each one of these questions in a different way. Many times I have people come and ask for marriage counseling and talk about how their marriage is just a total wreck. And I look at their life involved in the local church. I look at, um, I can look at like, when are they at events where we're preaching the word of God and the, the ministry of the word is being done over them? Where the family is at that. I can look at, are they evangelizing? I can look at, are they using their gifts to serve in a local body? And just the things that God calls us to do as New Testament Christians. And, and many times people come and they ask for marriage counseling and their marriage is a total wreck. And I'm talking things that guys write books about. And I look, this isn't every time, but many times these people have no walk with Jesus and a walk that you see lived out within a local church body context, which is New Testament Christianity. And so they've said no to everything God calls us to, or many things that God calls us to, for the sake of family. And so I'll talk to them and I'll say, you know, I see that there's an idol in your life and in your marriage of family and doing stuff with family and going on vacations and just never being around in body life and, and uh, children's athletics or getting that violin that violin lesson tuned in on Sunday mornings, you know, whatever it is. And those things, you just put them all together and you put the pieces together and you see why that home is falling apart. So just one of the first things I do is I look at how is your life of living for Jesus in a New Testament way as individuals and as a home um, affecting your marriage? And it's, it's detrimental to the home. So uh, just things to be thinking through, things to write through there. Uh, filled with the spirit in the marriage part two have you been trying to fix issues in your marriage or family by taking care of the peripheral issues rather than tackling the issues of your heart how might addressing external issues of performance and appearance be like adding icing to a moldy cake so you might just really think about it. If you get a chance to talk through these things with your spouse or take the time to talk through these things with your spouse, or maybe you make a copy and you each kind of write them separately and then come back and, and share your answers, you know. But what are ways that like, man, I've been trying to tackle things just by white knuckling it and pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and I've never dealt with the sinful issues on my own heart. 
and needing to be walking in the new covenant of the gospel. Okay. Um, Number six, have you been born again? Have you been given a new heart by God? If we don't address this issue at the beginning of the issues, then we're putting that frosting on a moldy cake. Oh, did I give you the answer for that one for the first question? I'm sorry, but it's okay. So, uh, and so just the question is like the reality in your marriage, are you just a good red blooded American, you know, and you look all polished on the outside and you know, people look at you and your neighbor knows you and your coworkers know you and he's a good guy and she's a good gal and everyone loves you and you maybe even come to church or you look pretty righteous on the outside, but ask the Lord, Lord, have you given me a heart transplant? And have you taken out my old sinful, wicked heart that never wanted to know you and never wanted to follow you? And have you given me a new heart? Have I been born again? Have I been regenerated? Have I been given new life in the Spirit? And the Lord might show you in your little time of filling out this questionnaire, like, like you're just a real nice person that is pretty moralistic and you voted for Trump or whatever, you know, but, or you didn't vote for Trump, however you're leaning, like whatever makes you think that you're a good person, like you're leaning on the wrong understanding there and you need to surrender to me and let my blood wash away all your sins and let my empty tomb give you resurrection power in your life and now let's go charge it this thing for what I've bought and paid for for you, okay? So, have you been born again? Have you been given a new heart by God? Verse seven, number seven. What are ways that you could start sowing to the Spirit in your marriage and home? What are ways to start um, living for God? What are ways to start praying together, worshiping together, reading the Bible together, picking a book or a devotional and going through together? Start sowing to the Spirit in your home. You know, uh, Paul says, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. Speaks if you're living for worldly stuff, you're going to die. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. And so how can you start sowing to the Spirit? Number eight. How do you, this comes from that really long quote at the end, okay? How do you personalize an offense that was never meant to be personal? I really apologize for never reading through these out loud beforehand. (laughs) Have you ever personalized an offense that was never meant to be personal and thus been adversarial in your response? How has that been a missed opportunity to minister to your spouse and to their heart? Take the time to think this one through. Confess and repent to your spouse. I want you guys to really think about some ways that, that you've done this, okay? Um, it's funny because having taught through this series a couple times, um, this, this one comes up in my heart and mind occasionally. And a couple weeks ago, having a conflict with Lindsay, and I mean, it was just like, I don't even know what the heck just happened, you know? And some time alone, <laughs> and just asking the Lord, I'm sure that there was a billion things wrong in what I did, but probably the, co- the core heart thing of what I did that the Lord showed me when I just humbled myself before him and said, you got you to show me my sin. And one of the things that he says is, you weren't even looking for a way to minister to her as a 
person, if it was someone in your church, what would you have done for them? You would have like bent over backwards to minister to the issue at hand. And you just lashed out and snapped and just had no care for her as a person, let alone the person that I've given you to, um, to minister to and to help. Um, there's a word, you guys wrote it down, redeem, you know, to redeem her. And so be thinking through those situations and maybe it would be a good opportunity in this question time to talk to the person and be like, here's what came to my mind and I just want to confess it to you and repent to you. And, and they might say, and here's other ways that you do it too. And it's just good because then it's like, yeah, help me out with this. Because don't you love that? Like when your spouse got off from work, they weren't just thinking like, oh man, I had a stinky day and now I'm just going to go home and I'm going to make their life wicked. And, you know, it's just like, they never thought that. It's just miss out on an opportunity to love on that spouse who came home just hurting and begrudged and all of that. So, not bad. Okay, wrapping it up. Oh, guys, I got to tell you, number eight kills me. Number eight is killing me. I mean, I'm reading it. I'm almost to the point of tears with you guys. And I know that I got work to do. Okay, so you think you got work to do too? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, think, perfect. Nope, good. Okay. How does the story of the gospel, i.e., God turning something as ugly as a crucifixion into something as beautiful as a resurrection, bring hope to your marriage and family life? Lindsay, any thoughts on any of this? No. Especially the part about. Nothing? This is on video. You better say something. <laughs> any thoughts out there on any of these questions that you'd just like to share? Or think through, or maybe a perspective? Everyone's really tired. Read the room, Roar. Read the room. Hey, I got you tortilla chips and salsa. You guys, come on. Okay? Nothing? Wrapping up? Going once? Going twice? Have a thought? All right. Adam's like, no, do it. <laughs> okay. Lindsay, will you pray over all of this? Hey, we called it a marriage intensive, okay? They're going to have us in like a 90-degree room, and they're going to have it be like four hours, and it's intense. Okay, Lindsay, will you pray and close us down? Lord, we are just so thankful that you are sufficient for all of our weaknesses. We're so thankful that you are a good God, and you want good things for those who love you and follow hard after you, Lord. Lord, would you just pour your Holy Spirit out on each and every one of us to just walk in this gospel-centered, spirit-filled marriage that you have designed for each and every one of us to be a part of, Lord. Lord, just thank you so much for everyone here. Lord, I just pray that you would bind the enemy as couples drive home tonight. Would you just... Um, instigate good conversation and just be in the midst of them and Lord, just do your work in each one of these marriages lord thank you so much thanks for rory thanks for all of his hard work and preparation for this for us lord and i just pray that you would bless him and lord just thank you we're just so grateful that we serve you who is our ultimate example of laying your life down um, for your bride and for your church lord we just love you so much, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Amen.
Hey, do me a favor, guys. Do yourself a favor. When you go get in your car right now, husbands, pray out loud in the car for you and your wife, okay? And, and just pray over everything that you heard tonight. And it's okay to pray, Lord, I didn't even get half of that, or I didn't even get a tenth of that, or I don't even know what he's talking about, but Lord, help me, help us. And then maybe go into your conversations after prayer. Pray before you answer the questions, pray after you answer the questions, pray together, okay? Love you guys, okay, bye.